I think we're uh, just waiting for recording to be set up. So um, just say hello to you all. It's lovely to be with you uh, again. Uh, I actually miss seeing you face to face, but it's lovely that we're able to meet in this way. If you have your Bibles, then grab them now. We're going to read from the Old Testament. We're going to read from Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. So I'll give you a second or two just to, to look that up. Zechariah chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'll read quite uh, speedily uh, and you can follow on hopefully. <clears throat> and the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever is despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Well, amen, and may God bless to us his word. May he give us such understanding of it as he means us to receive uh, this day, and may he get glory for himself and glory in our lives through what he says to us uh, today. It really is lovely for me to be with you. I was uh, sharing with some of you, you maybe knew this, you maybe didn't, that uh, actually just at the, the latter part of 2020, from September onwards, uh, Morag and I were actually up in, in Lewis. We were invited to be part of the work of a, a congregation there. It was actually very beneficial to me because they were in a, a lower tier and there was a, a lot more freedom and it was safer for somebody with my type of 
lung condition <clears throat> because there's very uh, little coronavirus up there. So it was a great blessing in all sorts of ways. And one of the blessings was that we actually got a very good Christian bookshop in Stornoway. Uh, and uh, I got a couple of things that have been a great blessing to me since. Uh, I think this is the best 30 pence I've ever spent in my life. It's called Read the Bible in a Year. And it's a, a scheme of daily Bible reading by Robert Murray McChain, who was one of the most used people in the spiritual history of Scotland. So that's been a great blessing. If you're looking uh, for a new Bible reading scheme, 30p, and uh, it really is a, a good scheme to follow. And the other thing that I, I got, I used to have this, but I had to get rid of all my books, uh, old books, harbour mold spores. So I had to get rid of all my books. And uh, when I was in Stornoway, I bought a new copy of this, the checkbook of the Bank of Faith by Charles Spurgeon. You've maybe heard of it. Uh, basically, Spurgeon, he, he gets a promise out of the Bible for each day of the year, and he speaks a wee bit about it in his inimitable smart style. And uh, this year, I was particularly struck early on uh, by the, the reading for January the 2nd. The promise is this, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. I, I love that verse. It's Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And this is what Charles Spurgeon says about this. Just picking out one sentence, the whole page is glorious. Um, but this is what he actually says. Though it would be under their feet, in other words, under believers' feet, though it would be under their feet, yet the bruising would be of the Lord alone. So the bruising is of the Lord alone, but Satan is crushed under our feet. What a humiliation for him that uh, he is crushed under human feet by the power of the Lord. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. I, I love the sense of cooperation between the Lord and his people that that verse contains. You know, we, we've been uh, uh, thinking together a lot of people over this coronavirus season. Uh, a favourite word that seems to be arising in the churches is reset. Uh, thank God that God doesn't need reset. Uh, there's nothing wrong with God this morning. He is eternally true to himself. Thank God, for example, he doesn't reset himself for uh, what he revealed of himself in his heart when he sent Jesus into the world that we've just been remembering at Christmas time. Do you remember the two wonderful names, or, or two, or the, Jesus has many names, many titles, but do you remember the two that come up in the conversation between the angel and Joseph? Uh, Joseph is told, you, you'll call this baby Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. And then slight, a few verses later, the, the prophecy of Isaiah is quoted, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Thank God he's not reset himself from that. He's still God with us. And how we need to know that every day, all the seasons of life, but perhaps particularly in seasons like this, where many have been feeling discouraged 
and sapped of their strength, etc., etc., through these unusual times, God with us. And the other name, Jesus, we could say that's God for us because Jesus didn't come into the world to reveal the heart of God who wants to condemn us, but to reveal that God wants to have mercy upon sinners and to love us with grace. So thank God there's been no pressing of the reset button for God himself. He is God with us and he is God for us in 2021. But sometimes we need to re press the reset button because sometimes we're, we're not really in that place, that combination, that coming together of the people of God and God himself to fulfill through that combination the purposes of God uh, in this world. It was a few years ago <clears throat> that I believe the Lord gave me a, a picture that uh, sort of uh, expresses that truth. It was actually in a dream. Uh, and what I saw was rank upon rank of angels standing as it were in battle array, fully armed. But I noticed that there were spaces in the ranks. And I don't mean I heard the voice of God, but I just somehow knew in the dream that these spaces were not for angels. God doesn't need reset and the angels don't need reset. They're already set in place, being true to themselves, unchangingly so. But these spaces were waiting for human beings to fill, to fill them to be in that proper place with God so that the purposes of God could advance. I love the verse in Acts chapter 13, speaking of David, it, it, it sums up his life like this, having served the purposes of God in his generation, he fell asleep. Isn't that a lovely verse? That's a wonderful way to live. It's a wonderful way to come to the end of our life. It's a wonderful way to end our life and to enter eternity, that having served the purpose of God in our generation, we fall asleep. None of us can do it all. There have been generations that have come before us. If the Lord tarries, there'll be generations after us. But our responsibility is this combination to get into our places in the ranks, this combination of the God of peace, just making his kingdom real and obvious in the world through crushing the enemy under our feet. And it's with that, uh, that, that concept of combination and God and his people working together, that, that I want us to look at Zechariah chapter 4. You know, there's maybe much in that chapter as we read it that is a bit confusing. And uh, in a sense, we've, we've not got time to look into every confusing detail. But the, the bare bones are pretty clear. Let, let me just first of all set the context of the prophesying of Zechariah. You'll probably know, don't worry if you don't,
But uh, just in case you didn't, or just to remind you, let me set the context. Israel had actually been sent into exile under the judgment of God. And first of all, the, the northern part of Israel that was called Israel was taken into exile by Assyria. And then years later, Judah, not learning from the example of Israel, the north of Israel, Judah, the south of Israel, they didn't learn from their example. They didn't heed the warnings of God. And yes, there were good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah and so on, who brought about a measure of return to the Lord and uh, reform, seeking to bring God and his people into that closeness of relationship. But ultimately, judgment came. And Judah, just like Israel, the southern part of Israel, Judah, was sent into exile under the judgment of God into Babylon. But Jeremiah had said that that would last 70 years and then God's mercy would triumph over wrath. Where sin abounds, grace would abound all the more and the people of God would be brought back to their own land by the merciful love of God. And so it happened. Uh, Babylon was conquered eventually by uh, Persia and the Persian emperor called Cyrus, Isaiah prophesied this centuries before, prophesied him by name. Cyrus actually issued a decree that the people of God were to return to Jerusalem and they were to rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian empire had destroyed. Now, it wasn't particularly altruistic. He actually believed in many gods, this Cyrus. And uh, what he wanted was the protection, the blessing of every god that he could get the protection and blessing of. And so the purpose in him sending the people of God back was not to fulfill prophecy. It was so that they would pray and offer sacrifices for the well-being of himself and his sons and his heirs but whatever that mixture of motives the people of God come back and they start to rebuild but they faced opposition and you'll know that if you read through Haggai and Zechariah they faced opposition and so the building work stopped for many years and then it starts again with the encouragement of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet that we read from this morning. And it's in that context that we come across chapter four. And what we read of here is a vision of a golden lampstand. Now, Zechariah would have been familiar of, with that from the, the temple, uh, from the, the temple furnishings described by Moses in the book of Exodus. It has seven lamps on it. Some people think it may be seven times seven, that each of the seven had seven lamps, so there'd be 49 lamps. But let's stick with the, the usual understanding. There were seven uh, lamps, however many sub-lamps there were. 
And you remember how Zechariah is told what these actually represent? They represent the eyes of the Lord watching over the nations of the world, the all-seeing knowledge of God watching over his purposes for his people that he would fulfill in the midst of the nations. So these lamps represent the glorious uh, consecration of God watching over his purposes for his people. But you know, that lampstand in the temple represented not only the consecration of God to his people. Remember this theme of combination, cooperation between God and his people. That lampstand also represented the consecration of the people of God to God's purposes. It was laid upon all the people of Israel as a responsibility that they were to provide oil to keep the lamp burning. And that provision of oil to keep that lamp with its seven lamps burning was therefore, remember combination cooperation, it was a sign of the consecration of God to his people, but it was a sign too of the consecration of the people themselves to God. And that's what Zechariah is prophesying into. The people have been discouraged. They've been discouraged by their enemies. There's also been, if we read Haggai right, a certain amount of apathy that has settled upon them. And discouragement and apathy, it's a bit of a vicious circle, isn't it? Maybe you're feeling a bit of apathy that you've lost your zeal for the Lord. Maybe 2020 was very energy and strength sapping for you. It has been for many people. And maybe you feel it's difficult to get going again. And Zechariah is speaking into that discouragement and encouraging the people of God back into this cooperation, this consecration to the God who is consecrated to them, who is watching over his purposes, that they would come into that cooperation with him. And that cooperation, it's a, a visionary type thing we're reading of in Zechariah 4. That type of cooperation is symbolized by two trees on either side of the lamp. And these trees, through their branches and through a pipe leading from them, are supplying the bowl of oil to keep the lamps burning. And you remember how actually Zechariah has to ask what they are. He actually asks three times in the course of the chapter, once early on. And then let's just pick up the, the reading from halfway through verse 10. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. So that's what we've been talking about, the consecration of God to his purposes for his people, watching over his purposes to fulfill them. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? 
And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Or these are the, the two sons of new oil who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about two real individuals. He's talking about Zerubbabel, the, 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 the heir of the, the king who was taken off into exile he, uh, in Babylon. He, he is descended from that king. So he's talking about a, a ruler, a, a prince, as it were. And on the other hand, the other tree represents Joshua, who was the high priest. And you can read about him in chapter 3. But here was the problem, that the God who looks for cooperation between the, the people and himself, and that was represented by Zerubbabel and, and Joshua. Joshua, the leader, felt very weak. He was facing apathy. He was facing a mountain of rubble. And Joshua, the high priest, who was meant to represent purity, he had been feeling filthy and dirty. And God comes in this vision to help Zerubbabel and to help Joshua into their place representing the people of God and representing this coming together, this combination of the purpose of a consecrated God being met with a consecration from his people. And there's, I really just want to focus on these two individuals because I, I do think that there's something in these two individuals that God wants you to hear. In fact, not just you, this is, something that God is laying in my heart for the churches, as it were, to, to pick up a, a theme from Graham, that something that we really need to get hold of in this new year. Let's look at Zerubbabel first. You remember he felt weak, he felt discouraged, and many are feeling discouraged at the moment. And he was meant to be full of zeal and he was meant to be full of energy and full of all the strength that that to, to fulfill this task, but he felt anything like that. He felt discouraged, he felt weak. And what does he hear? Aren't these amazing words? Verse six of chapter four. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts didn't matter how weak he felt because this consecration that God looks for to his purposes from his people, it isn't sustained by our might. It isn't sustained by our power. So it doesn't matter how weak we feel, not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I remember when I was training for the ministry, when God helped me to see that in actual experience. I was an assistant minister, not far from where I am now, I was an assistant minister in Linlithgow in West Lothian, <clears throat> in the church there with the funny looking spire, if you've ever seen it, that looks like a crown of thorns. Actually, the architect was, he, he was, he, he met an angry person who said, that looks so out of place on that old building, this modern looking sculpture of a crown of thorns. And you know what he said? He said, well, a crown of thorns looked out of place in Christ. That's quite a good, quite a good retort, isn't it? So that was the church where I did my assistantship. And I, yeah, this is going back to 1982, the early 1980s, where I began to be an assistant. And uh, just after a few weeks after going there, the, the minister, Mr. Patterson, took unwell, and I was left having to preach every week. Now, now you might think, well, that's, that's no problem. That's what you're called to do. But after about six or seven weeks, I felt dry. And it came to week eight or whatever, and uh, I sat for a whole day thinking about the, the sermon for the following Sunday, and absolutely nothing would come. And I felt really panicky, and I felt completely weak and terror-struck. And so instead of going out visiting, as I should have done, I stayed in for even more hours trying to write a sermon. I felt I had to get something on the page and still nothing would come. So I said to Morag in the evening, I said, you know what, I've made a huge mistake. I'm not called to the ministry at all. I'll need to go and see Mr. Patterson over in his house until I'm given up. That's it. And Morag said, well, if you really think that, if you really feel that's the Lord, well, 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 you better do it. And so I went over to see Mr. Patterson, but he wasn't in. And so I came home and I slept. And the next morning, I, I, I managed to get something together, the bare bones of something, having slept a bit. But I decided I can't go through this agony for 40 years. And I went over to see Mr. Patterson in the morning and I explained the situation. And he was one of these very, very dignified people. And he just looked at me and he said, Kenneth, when I feel like that, I go and eat a packet of crisps. You know, in a humorous way, he was telling me verse 6 of Zechariah chapter 4. Kenny, relax. It's not by your might. It's not by your power. It's not by your anything. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. I can genuinely say that since 1982, since that experience, the waters of the spirit have never failed. Because when we believe in Jesus, there's released a, a spring of life that wells up and overflows and it never runs dry. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Very interested to hear that Graham talked in his exhortations at the start of the need to pray 
That's how we make real, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Can I share with you what you maybe don't believe? What I'm doing now goes totally against my nature. It goes totally against my nature to be in front of people. It goes totally against my nature to stand in front of a congregation. It is not who I am by personality, but it's who I am by calling and by the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. When I compare the life of churches, uh, and I'm not signaling anyone out because I think this covers every church I know. When I can compare the church as I encounter her in Scotland with the church that I read of in the book of Acts, I wonder how did that become this? And it makes me cry out to God for Scotland. John prayed about a fresh move. It makes me cry out to God for Scotland, for myself. When I compare myself with Jesus and his ministry and the power that flowed through his ministry, it makes me aware not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And it makes me cry out. Why don't we cry out to God continually? For a fresh hurricane of the Spirit. For fresh waters of the living Spirit to be released in us, for us, through us. So here's the rubble. And for this cooperation, this consecration to a God consecrated to his people. He needs to bring his weakness, his strengthlessness. Humbly before God and hear and believe and receive the fulfillment of this promise. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And you remember what the other tree was. That represented Joshua, the high priest. You can read in chapter three, I've not got time. I'm taking too much time as usual to speak, but you can read in Zechariah chapter three of how Zerubbabel, the priest, the priest had a, a plate on the front of his turban that said, holy unto the Lord, separated unto God living for him, following his ways. Remember uh, Levi, the ancestor of all the priests. Remember in Malachi, we, we, we read of what a priest was to do. They preserve knowledge of God's ways. They give instructions in God's ways to God's people so that God's people can be holy too, which means separate, different, living in his ways, not the ways of the surrounding nations, not the ways of sin. And yet the high priest, Joshua, who was meant to represent this, was filthy. 
Satan accuses them. But the wonderful thing is in chapter three, his dirty robes are taken off him. He's given clean robes. He is clean, clean, clean before the Lord. And he's given a new turban, holy unto the Lord. He's forgiven, he's reinstated. He is placed in this place of purity, separation unto the Lord, recommissioned to be that himself and to instruct the people of God in the ways of God, just as had been the case in his ancestor Levi. What does that represent in terms of this cooperation? If, if the first thing we need to bring is our weakness to be replaced by the strength of the Spirit, Joshua, the priest, the other olive tree, he reminds us that we need to be separated unto the Lord and following the instructions of the Lord. And we have a high priest, his name is Jesus. And he instructs us how to be a holy people. If we were to sum up the instruction of Jesus, our high priest, well, actually, we don't need to think how to do it because Jesus did love God with everything you've got and love others. And it's particularly that second element I feel of to focus on with you as a congregation because I believe this too is what the Spirit is saying to the church is not just to you, but yes, to you. Will you make it your aim individually to outdo one another in one thing? Showing and expressing love to one another. You know, at times of tension and discouragement and uncertainty, it's very easy for negative stuff to creep in there between believers. And we don't necessarily mean it to happen, but somehow it just does. And especially in times of strain and difficulty, it, it's very easy for love to ebb away. I remember hearing an American preacher, Jack Deere, said that he understood as a pastor why shepherds carry staffs. He says it's so they can beat the sheep over the head because sheep can be nasty, sheep can bite, sheep can bite sheep, sheep can bite a shepherd, a shepherd can bite the sheep. There's all sorts of combinations. The challenge of Joshua, the high priest, is to listen to our high priest, to leave ways of sin, to leave ways of selfishness, to, to leave these sorts of things that can disrupt the relationship amongst the people of God and create division and, and disunity and suspicion, etc. 
and to aim at doing one thing, to love one another. You know, I think the Lord said this to me. Sometimes believers fight to be right. To be the one who is most truly understanding the Lord in the scriptures. Do you, do you remember that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they all felt that they were right, that they were following the word of the Lord. But Jesus said they were all wrong. And so often those who think they're so right beyond anybody else in terms of the Lord's word and what the Lord is saying and what the scriptures say, they've missed the whole point. These groupings that thought they were so right, that they understood the word of the Lord and were following the word of the Lord, they didn't love God. They crucified God. They didn't love other people. In fact, they hated Jesus for loving other people and they themselves just loaded other people with burdens that were too heavy for them. Didn't care a fig. And Jesus' message of love just flies in the face of that. You think you're so right, but you're blind guides. You've missed the point. And if we think that we've got a mastery of the scriptures and we understand what is right more than anybody else, but we've not got love in our hearts, then we've lost the way. Here's my challenge to you as a congregation. In these days when Satan would love to stir up distressing thoughts, negative thoughts, tension between believers because of the strangeness of the hour, make it your aim to love one another to outdo one another in showing honour to one another and to outdo one another in showing love. I think the Lord gave me this question to place before you. If your aim in gathering with the people of God as and when that becomes possible, or even now through Zoom and so on, if your aim is other than coming together to love, why bother? If you personally, can I be very personal? If you personally, if it is not your aim when you gather together to love your fellow believers, to outdo one another in showing love, it would be better you stay away. <laughs> if your aim is to fight for your way, your will, if your aim is to get the leadership to do what you think is right from the scriptures even, if that's your aim, and that's become more important than loving,
might be better for the congregation if you stay away. Here's the challenge. Why don't you open, and I'll close with this, why don't you open your Bible regularly at 1 Corinthians 15? Because we're told there what love actually means and looks like. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, sorry, not chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 13. And why don't I close just by reading this and see if you can take out the word love and put out put in your own name. So instead of love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast. If I was listening, I'd be asking, Kenny is patient, Kenny is kind, Kenny does not envy or boast. Is that how I am in the fellowship of God's people? Is that how I am in my family? Is that how I am everywhere? This is what the high priest, holy unto the Lord, wants to say to us so that we become a people holy unto the Lord. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. And many congregations are spoiled by people insisting in their own way, not being holy unto the Lord, not following the high priest's instruction. Love does not insist in its own way. Can you put your own name there? Love is not irritable or resentful. Can you put your own name there? Can I put my name there? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Can you put in your own name there for the way you are in the fellowship? This is how the high priest tells us he wants us to live. This is him defining what it means to love one another through one of his apostles. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Do you bring hope to people, hope to the congregation, or are you a moaner? Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So God, well, we say it glibly, he can do what he wants without us, and he could, but it seems to me from the scriptures, he wants to work with us. And all through the scriptures, he's raising up a people, looking for a people who will come into cooperation with him. And through that combination of the consecrated God, the seven eyes, him watching over his purposes to fulfill them to his glory, and through the people of God consecrating themselves to such a God. Wonderful fresh beginnings can happen. Wonderful fresh works to the glory of God can happen. That the temple can be rebuilt when that combination happens, no matter the opposition, no matter the discouragement, no matter whether the times are favorable or not. And our responsibility is to remember these two elements, Zerubbabel, feeling weak, not by might, nor by power, but my, by my spirit. Pray for a fresh experience of the rivers of living water. Oh, how we need that.
Joshua, the high priest, instructing us in the ways of the Lord. Jesus, our high priest, instructing us. What does it mean to be the holy people of a holy God? Supremely this, love him and love one another. Make it your aim to outshine one another in showing love, not to outshine in any other way, not to seek the preeminence in any other way. So I hope that that blesses you. Think of Zerubbabel, think of Joshua. Think of the encouragement that the God of grace brought to them both and think of what they represent in terms of what is the spirit saying to the churches near the start of this new year with all its unknowns. May God bless his word to you. I think that's all I have to say. So I'll hand back to Graham.